Hello and welcome to Beth Takun and the Spiritual Season series. In these teachings, we are studying the weekly Torah portions through the lens of the overall spiritual seasons of the year and God's pattern of salvation. This week we are in Parsha Akev from the middle of Deuteronomy chapter 7 to near the end of chapter 11. The portion begins with the great blessings God will shower upon the people if they keep the commandments. And Moses says here that with God crossing over ahead of them to undermine the enemies in the land, they will successfully take down the giants in the land and destroy the Canaanites there. In these chapters, Moses also says that when they get into the land, they will need to be careful that they don't forget God and walk away from the covenant and themselves suffer destruction. They should remember what God had done for them that they saw with their own eyes from Egypt all through the wilderness. And they should remember some of their big missteps like the golden calf and the evil report of the ten spies and Korah's rebellion He tells them that God is going to bring them in and help them to conquer, not because of their righteousness, but because of the great evil of the Canaanites and because of the promises he gave to the patriarchs. A notable section in this portion at the end of the portion is the second paragraph of the Shema, which begins, If you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today to love the Lord your God, And then it goes on from there to describe the great blessings of the harvests and the different seasons and um, onward. Well, um, after that summary, that that brief summary of the portion, let's think about where Akev fits into the bigger picture. So let's um, turn our attention especially to how it fits into the flow of the calendar. Parsha Devarim Uh, began with a review of Israel's history. It's a portion that carries some rebuke with it as Moses recounts certain events in the wilderness journey. After reading Devarim, the first portion in Deuteronomy, we came to the low point in the calendar, Tishba'av. Just after Tishba'av, we read Parsha Va'et Hanan, which was last week, and that started with the description of Moses' pleading to the Lord to allow him to enter the land and his rejection. Well, uh, with these, these couple of parshas, Va'echanan and Ekev, we are beginning to sense a shift happening, a shift away from the heaviness of the three weeks toward looking to repair and reunion now, the title of Va'et Hanan still seems rooted in the striving of the three weeks, and I pleaded. But actually, the, a lot of the content there of Va'et Hanan um, starts to turn us toward the land and entering the land and the life they will live in the land. And so, for one thing, the Haftorah of Va'et Hanan also that begins the seven haftarot of consolation, right? Comfort, comfort my people. And so these seven haftarot are all taken from the latter chapters of Isaiah. And um, in that last portion, we saw the Ten Commandments, 
and the Shema, and um, these foundational pieces for the normal life in the land, which is the Torah. So Ve'er is a little bit mixed, because on the one hand, the title is kind of still rooted in that striving, but the content is already moving us toward the land and the next phase. Well, with Ekev, that, that shift that is just beginning with Ve'er becomes obvious. So for one thing, the very first word of the portion is Vahaya, and it will be. And so the sages say that when a parsha or a section of a parsha begins with Vahaya, that's the language of joy, Simcha. But if a portion or section begins with Vayahi, so Vahaya versus Vayahi, Vayahi means and it was, rather than and it will be, it's the language of trouble. So Ekev not only starts with Vahaya, but also contains another prominent section that begins with Vahaya, the second paragraph of the Shema, which we find in chapter 11. And it will be Vahaya if you diligently obey my commandments. So here we have two prominent uses of the language of joy in this portion. We're really starting to make this turn now. And Rabbi Trugman points out that before long, we're coming to the portion of Kitavo, which also begins with Vahaya. And Rabbi Trugman makes an important connection for us between these various sections started with Vahaya. He says what they have in common is an emphasis on the land, praising the land of Israel and its fruits and minerals and abundance. These sections here that begin with the language of joy, in other words, are all pointing us to the land and dwelling in the land. And so this means they're all turning our attention to the second half of the salvation pattern, the half of maturity, including the goal stages of salvation. So we find that as our portions are making this shift away from the three weeks, they do that partly by emphasizing the land. And the name Akev itself is also showing us this shift toward the joy of rectification and reunification and repair. Ekev often gets translated because or if in the verse of the portion which reads, which is the first verse, and because you listen to these rules and keep and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. Well, the rabbis note that the word Akev is a bit strange here, though. Its most literal meaning is heal, like that under part of your foot, right? So the part of the foot that is lowest, the very last and lowest part of the human body. The root idea of Akev seems to be at the end, at the end, or when it's all said and done. And so, in the end, Israel, just to rephrase that verse, in the end, Israel, if you will shema, if you will listen and do these commandments, the Lord will keep the covenant with you and the steadfast love he swore to your fathers. And so, this title, Akev, could be literally understood on one level to be saying, 
in the end or at the end of salvation, in the end times or the result, when you go into and dwell in the land. In calendar terms, the latter times are the dark half of the year that is marked by the embodiment process. So this is what begins in the fall, in the seventh month, this embodiment process of bringing down the spiritual into the physical. The word ekev then is carrying with it these overtones of healing and maturity and the end, the goal. And so since this is the title of the portion, this means that the entire portion has this end goal emphasis in mind. So our attentions are turning in earnest now. The Torah is telling us that it's time now to begin preparing for the seventh month, the month that marks the transition from adolescence to adulthood. Well, I want to make some calendar connections now to this current week that help to clearly establish that this shift is happening right now. I've mentioned before in the Parsha Devarim teaching when we were introducing the month of Av, okay, our current month, that the energy of this month switches very quickly. It's very heavy at the beginning of the month, dominated by the strong disciplinary hand of the Av, the father. Av means father. Um, and the mazel of the lion who destroys his own temples on the ninth of Av. But from the ashes of the temple comes the first glimmers of the Messiah, the tradition that the idea of the Messiah is born from the ruins of Tishbaav. On the ninth of Av, as we stare into the smoking carcass of the temple, we are pushed toward the Messiah as we cry out for salvation. The smoldering temple really stands for all the ruin brought on by sin and death in the world and the severing of the intimate connection between God and the entire world. And so even on Tishbaav itself, we are being shifted towards salvation in the Messiah. What else can you do from that low point? There's only one place you can go from the low point. And right from that moment, we're, we're being pushed in the direction of the Messiah. And so that the rapid change um, quickly becomes evident in the calendar. So while reading this portion, and so Tishbaav kind of was, um, it was last week. And so while reading this portion here, we have come through another minor holiday already, starting just last Tuesday, which is only a couple days ago from when I'm recording here. And that's the 15th of Av, which is also called Tuba Av. And here's where we're going to see this, this shift that was happening so quickly, even starting on Tishba Av. And we want to really camp out here for a minute, uh, for a while, because the 15th of Av, I've just found, especially this week, it's just so rich and in, in showing us now this turn away from the destruction toward this focus on healing, the healing that's coming up. And so it's a beautiful set of images helping us to see here with Tubaav, which is a very different day than the ninth of Av. Tubaav is almost considered 
the conclusion of the ninth of Av, and somehow they go together as a pair because the Tuba Av is almost the opposite or the complement, we could say, of the ninth of Av. Tuba Av was largely forgotten, however, as a special day for many, many centuries, but in our day it is being revived and returned to us. And it's a day that is not only connected to the ninth of Av, as we'll see as this complement of the ninth of Av, it's also connected forward to the seventh month and especially to Yom Kippur. So as we begin to unpack some of the connections here, put in the back of your mind the mirror reflection on the other side of the calendar, the minor holiday in the 11th month. That's exactly six months opposite to Tuba Av. So on the one hand, there's kind of a complement with the ninth of Av. But on the other hand, there's also a complement six months opposite on the calendar. It's called Tuba Shvat, the 15th of Shavat. So two is kind of a shorthand way to say 15. And so on the other side of the calendar, the 15th of Shavat, the 11th month. And that's also known as the new year for trees. One of the ways we learn about a particular season or day in the calendar is by looking at its complement on the other side of the calendar, which will have similarities. What I want you to rem- uh, remember about Tu Bishvat for the purposes of this discussion here today, um, and this is something that Rabbi Trugman brings out, is that um, it's said that on Tu Bishvat, the sap begins to rise in the trees, right? That's kind of beginning the ending of winter over there. The trees begin to awaken then from their winter slumber, but the stirring of life that's happening inside of them isn't visible yet. It's an internal change that begins to happen. And we're going to see those same invisible stirrings here on this side of the calendar beginning to happen as the new life of the seventh month begins to sort of well up in us now, like the sap rising in the tree, the new life that he has in store for us. He's preparing us for now, that which we are going to get in the seventh month. So Tubav is the full moon of Av, right, on the 15th. It is six weeks then before Rosh Hashanah, and it marks the day when Israel officially starts looking ahead to Rosh Hashanah and preparing for the new year of the seventh month. Rabbi Raskin points out that we read in this very portion the verse that says, God's eyes are on the land from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. And this phrase and this portion is one of the markers that moves us to start looking toward Rosh Hashanah. Rabbi Raskin also notes that soon at the uh, beginning of Elul, right, the next month of Elul, the shofar will begin to be blown every day in the synagogues. Again, looking ahead to the blowing of the shofar on Rosh Hashanah. And he notes that already on the 15th of Av, right, which we just came through, it is customary to start using New Year greetings, right? You can greet people and put them in your emails and letters, these uh, New Year greetings. 
And so in terms of the historical basics of the day, Tuba'av is anciently called one of the two most joyous days in the whole year. And so kind of strangely, the Mishnah says that the two most joyous days anciently were Tuba'av and Yom Kippur. And I say that's a bit strange because we basically forgot Tuba'av for one, and we don't really think of Yom Kippur as being especially joyful. But if you really believe that your sins are covered on Yom Kippur, then when that high priest emerges alive from the belly of the temple, you know that the sins of the nation have been successfully atoned for, and there must have been a great cry of joy that went up from the onlookers. But there's more, more to it. Uh, the Jews have their romantic side, I would say, and it seems to me that their greatest joy is seeing a young couple find the other half God intended for them, the moment of matchmaking. And according to Tractate Ta'anit in the Mishnah, uh, the two greatest days in the year for matchmaking were Tuba'av and Yom Kippur, the two days in the year when the young women would borrow white dresses and go out and dance in the vineyards and the streets, inviting the young men to come and to choose. So Tuba'av is a time to look ahead. Look ahead to what? We start looking ahead to and preparing for a coming marriage, right? All of this context here on Tuba'av, this shift toward the seventh month, this connection with Yom Kippur, it's, help, it's all happening in the context of matchmaking. Okay, so we're looking ahead to the marriage of the seventh month. And so you can see immediately that whereas the ninth of Av was a day of destruction and separation, right, the destruction of the temples, Tuba Av is revealing that we move now to a time of shalom, a time of bringing two opposites together. So Dr. Halissa Aylwine talks about how Tuba'av is a day for rectification and the reconciliation of brothers who were fighting. And we can see this idea that Dr. Elwine is describing when we look at a couple of historical events traditionally associated with Tuba'av. And so she goes through these as well. These include the day we, um, a day that we read about in Judges, the book of Judges, when the ban on intermarrying with the tribe of Benjamin was lifted so remember that there was a civil war in Israel in which Benjamin was almost wiped out. And there was a ban on marrying into Benjamin. And eventually that decree was lifted. And tradition says that that lifting happened on Tuba'av. And so again, matchmaking on the one hand, also brothers coming together here where it's um, okay again to marry into the tribe of Benjamin. And so that that tribe can continue to exist. It's also said to be the day that the king of the northern kingdom of Israel began to allow his people to make pilgrimage again to Jerusalem. And so I don't think we have directly the story in the Torah, not that I remember anyway, but um, apparently when the northern and southern kingdoms split after King Solomon, the northern king eventually decreed that the northern tribes could no longer go to Jerusalem at the Moedim, according to the Torah, because this was seen as a threat to the legitimacy of the northern kingdom as an independent state. 
right? You're split off. You don't want your people going to Jerusalem to make pilgrimage. On Tuba'av, this evil decree against the pilgrimage to Jerusalem was lifted. And so again, it's brothers and sisters coming back together. Interestingly, Tuba'av is also the day that the cutting of firewood for the temple for the upcoming year concluded. And so in a way, you could say the harvest of wood for the year is finished on this day, which is maybe a connection to Tubashvat on the other side of the calendar when the sap begins to run in the trees. Along with marking the end of the wood harvest, if we want to say it that way, Tubav also marks the official beginning of another harvest, the grape harvest in Israel, which is a very joyous time that includes a lot of people coming together to speedily accomplish all the work that has to get done um, related to the grape harvest. It has to happen fairly quickly. Those grapes aren't going to stay forever there on the vines. So adding one more idea to this, this just brilliant web of connections for Tuba'av, the mission, Mishnah goes on to cite a verse for the young women who go forth to dance on Tuba'av. And the verse is from the Song of Solomon, chapter 3, and it starts out, Go out, O daughters of Zion, and look upon King Solomon. And it mentions um, Solomon's crown that his mother gave him on his wedding day in that verse. So King Solomon is a particularly rich symbol for Tuba'av. Let's think about what he's adding into the, you know, into the mixture here for a minute as we continue to explore how it is that Tuba'av is taking our attentions from the ninth of Av and focusing them on the seventh month. So first, though, let's uh, remember that the seventh month is all about a wedding to the king. During the Moedim of the seventh month, the king Messiah's coming is announced on Rosh Hashanah. He provides a covering for his bride, um, engaged bride, on Yom Kippur, and he arrives to consummate the marriage at Sukkot, right, the intimacy of the Sukkah. When you think of the seventh month, think marriage to the king, the Messiah. And uh, the kings that come to mind, especially historically, for this time of the year in particular, are first King David and second King Solomon. Solomon's name in Hebrew is Shlomo, from the same root as Shalom, meaning peace and wholeness. Shalom is especially the idea of two complementary halves coming together to make a oneness, an echad. And here at Tuba'av, the maidens are told to go out and look for their Shalom. Look on King Shlomo, on King Solomon. But there's more to King Solomon, right? There always is. We just keep digging, keep going. He is known for his many marriages, right? And many of these were political marriages that brought kingdoms together into a working relationship under Israel's control. And so in that sense, under Solomon, King Solomon, Israel becomes the groom to the surrounding nations, which are the bride that support Israel as helpmates. But there's more. Now, the ninth of Av is the day of the destruction of the temple. And 
Who is it that builds the temple? It's King Solomon. In fact, he not only builds it, but it says that he completes it in the eighth, eighth month, but he waits to inaugurate it, to dedicate it. And he waits till which month? Well, he waits a whole 11 months until he comes back around to the seventh month. So here again, the seventh month is a kind of repair of the ninth of Av. And we're seeing these strong allusions to the seventh month here at Tuba Av through a lot of different angles. Dr. Aylwine further points out that the rabbis say that shalom among brothers is a prerequisite to rebuilding the temple. And shalom was what ruled in Israel during King Solomon's reign. As far as we can tell, King Solomon never had to go to war. So that kind of peace was the context God wanted and even required for the building of his temple. Well, there's just so much happening here on Tuba'av, so many clues, so many connections. All of them are pointing us toward Yom Kippur and the other Moedim of the seventh month. We're talking about a turn here with Tuba'av, but it's really the little turn that looks ahead to the big turn in the year, you know, the big, the big turn in the year that is about to come. Um, the big, it, so this little turn is kind of saying to us, start to get ready because the big turn is coming. And that big turn is Rosh Hashanah and the onset of the second half of the calendar. So in Exodus 34, 22, the season of the year that includes Sukkot is called Tekufat Hashanah, the turn of the year. Rosh Hashanah is the fall equinox that marks the moment the night starts to dominate the day. So day and night are exactly balanced, 12 hours and 12 hours on Rosh Hashanah. And after Rosh Hashanah, night will be longer than the day for the next six months. And so it would seem the Torah regards the time of this fall equinox as the turn of the year. But here at, at Tubav, we, we do have a smaller climate-related threshold we're just passing through right here at Tubav. It's a smaller one. The beginning of August marks the peak of the heat in the year for Israel. And that's right around Tubav. So we are now on the cooling side of the year. And so that's the little turn that comes before the big turn. Well, let's do just a little more connecting now of the actual content of Ekev, Parsha Ekev, to this idea of turning our attentions to the relationship repair and deepening that is coming soon. First, though, let's remember again that we're building on the last portion, Ve'chanan, and the content there contains the Ten Commandments and the Shema, which emphasizes love for God. And so the Ten Commandments are kind of like the basics of the Torah, and the Shema is the beating heart of the Torah, which is love. So as this ship begins turning in the calendar, what we're reading in the Torah is right there in Vayat Hanan is Moses laying this foundation stone of the Torah through this kind of mini repetition of the Torah. In a way, we could say both the outside of the Torah and the inside of the Torah is done in Vayat Hanan in, in kind of a summary way. 
Well, moving forward now to ACAV, we've already mentioned that one way we can see this change of perspective towards Shalom is in this portion's emphasis on the land of Israel that they are about to go into. Ekev includes some of the most lyrical descriptions in the whole of the Torah of the land and the abundant life in the land. Throughout the winter, we see that entering the land, cleansing it, ruling over it, and settling into homes there are all steps associated with maturity. Maturity is reaching down to grab hold of the flesh and the, and the whole of the physical world and putting those to use for spiritual purposes. And this is what it happens at the end, in, in the whole second half of the cycle, and especially at the end. So connection number one in the content here in Ekev, as we look to the goal, we look to the land and life in the land. Well, going deeper now in Ekev, if I had to summarize the gist of this portion in one thought, it might be this. When God prospers you and gives you rest in the good land, don't become proud or you will fall. Moses says here that the land is going to be amazing and that Israel will indeed prosper there and lay down and rest. And that's the real danger point. Right? We think of the danger point as when we pick up the sword and go against the enemy, but God is fighting for us. It's when we, it's when we lay down and rest. That's the real danger point. And so being at the goal, it's a perilous place because we are so prone to become prideful in that place. That's the biggest giant of all the giants. And there are many giants, and God is going to help us with them all. And the biggest one of all, though, is pride. And we're just apt to forget when we get to that comfortable place. You get to the goal, and you somehow get amnesia for how you got there and all the praying you did along the way. And the little coincidences and the big coincidences um, and little graces God gave you to strengthen you, to put one foot in front of the next, getting you to the goal. And so being at the goal, it's a very elevated position, and it is from the elevated positions that one is able to fall. If you're already down low, right, through humbling yourself, let's say, if you happen to fall from there, well, you haven't fallen very far. It's when you're high up that falling is a real danger. If they start to think that they conquered the land and built it up again in their own strength, they will be tempted to forget God and forsake the Torah and suffer through a painful correction. And so here's the point we've been leading to for Akev in terms of how Akev speaks to the goal of entering the land. Much of what we see Moses doing here in Akev is taking them down a notch, right? He's humbling them. And he's also teaching them how to take themselves down a notch. Moses is called the most humble of men, and so he's the perfect teacher to be teaching Israel how to humble themselves. He's saying, remember this, you know, remember this over here, and don't forget this over here. Humbling ourselves is a learned skill, and so let me say that again. 
Humbling ourselves is a learned skill. It's a training in seeing ourselves through the full light of truth. The full light of truth. Pride led to the first fall, and pride is probably at the root of all falling. So we have to develop these muscles for being humble. One way or other, being humbled must precede a new work of God's grace. Now let me say that again, because it's very important. Being humbled must precede a new work of God's outpouring of his grace. Humility is like the oil in the wheel as it turns. And make no mistake, God will get us to grow. We're going to go around that wheel no matter what. God is a good gardener, right? He invented all this you know, stuff that we garden. But we can either be humbled with many lashes or we can help to lower ourselves down and require only a few lashes. We can either work with him or fight him at every step. And um, one way of looking at it, the entire book of Deuteronomy is a humbling of the people. And by the end of it, the doorway of grace and a higher work through the Messiah stands open. At the end of the humbling of Deuteronomy, Moses will be taken away and Joshua will ascend, Yahashua, right? The namesake of Yeshua and the image of Messiah for this generation. And in terms of the calendar, the humbling is just built into every step. We should expect this. It is God's design. We just need to get used to it. We need to get used to, we're taking a step forward. How can I humble myself right now? Because humbling is going to happen here one way or the other. Well, let's look at a couple of these points in Akev, where Moses is obviously lowering the people down, humbling them. Let's look at some of the language he's using here. In fact, uh, the language Moses uses here with the people is new in the Torah, as far as I can tell anyway. And it can even seem harsh at times, but it's really a great blessing in disguise for them because at least in part, well, we just said you have to be humbled before that grace through Yeshua is poured out on you. But um, in another way, it's helpful. It helps them to accept that though they are imperfect, right? He's telling them about all their imperfections over the wilderness journey here. And so it's kind of helping them because on the one hand, he's saying, though you're imperfect, God is still bringing you in, right? God still works with you and draws near to you and wants to co-create with you, even though you've got a colored past, right? And so we can all remember that. As the portion begins, we find a lot of positive words, actually, at the beginning and wonderful promises regarding God fighting for Israel as they enter the land Before long, though, Moses starts talking about how God himself humbled Israel in the wilderness, right? So they're standing in front of Moses, and Moses is saying to them, remember how God humbled you and your parents. And so starting in chapter 8, verse 2, Moses says, 
And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So we have that famous line here in this portion. And here we have Moses reminding the people that God himself wanted them to see how weak they were. There's no escaping this humbling of God. If you don't have food, you don't have food. If he led you to a place where you don't have food, (laughs) you don't have food. And so he put them in this dangerous place, or seemingly dangerous place, a place of scarcity, so that they could see their inability to care for themselves there. And then he could provide for them when they couldn't provide for themselves. Moses goes on in chapter 8 to warn them to not forget God when he blesses them. And he says in verse 17, Beware, lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. So he just says that out very clearly. Don't be looking at yourself as the source of this blessing. In chapter 9, Moses emphasizes that they are are indeed a weaker people than the sons of the Anakim in the land who are truly a mighty race. So how do you like that for humbling the people? You're puny compared to those people, he tells them. (laughs) But He says that God will cross over before them as a consuming fire. Imagine imagine this raging fire crossing over the Jordan River and just separating into a million pieces and, and zapping the people there. It's kind of the imagery that Moses is giving us. And it says he will drive out and destroy the inhabitants of the land. And Moses adds, not because of your righteousness, Or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you. And, so that's one reason, and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And so Moses says, God is going to do this consuming fire going in before them because he made promises to the patriarchs and because of how wicked the Canaanites are. And so at this point, mercy for these Canaanites, these utterly lost groups of people, is death. And God will use Israel to bring that death, which is mercy for them at this point. Moses then goes on to remind the Israelites how unrighteous they have been in the past, right? Their mistakes. He reminds them of the incident of the golden calf and how he had to intercede for them, right? He's kind of saying, if it wasn't for me, (laughs) I went without food for 40 days and 40 nights and I pleaded with God and he spared you. And he reminds them of how they again provoked God at Tabera and at Masa and at Kibrot Hateava including the rebellion of the evil report of the spies. And he has, adds this famous line. There's a lot of famous lines here in this portion. He says, so circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. And he reminds them of their humble beginnings, right? You didn't 
you weren't so great when I found you, he's saying. And he says, the Lord is your praise. He is your God who has who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen? And so here's where he mentions their beginnings. He says, Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. After setting out some of the actual words Moses uses to lower the people down, right? We just went through some of those words. So for our final topic here, let's see if we can draw out from Achav some general pointers for how we humble ourselves, right? This is a learned skill of seeing ourselves in the fullness of truth. And so there are some aspects of truth that we just tend to forget and we don't think about often. And so humbling ourselves is going to be remembering some truths that particularly... um, Help us just to see ourselves in the proper light. And so first, we seek out and listen carefully to the words and advice of our spiritual authorities. Right? How are we going to humble ourselves? Well, go ask your spiritual authorities. You know, what's going on? What do, what do they see in your life? Moses is Israel's spiritual authority at this point, And Deuteronomy is his advice for them. And, you know, we picture them there. Um, just listening diligently to Moses, their spiritual authority, speaking out this whole book of Deuteronomy to them over more than a month. And they listen, right? So second, remember that, so number one, go talk to your spiritual authority and listen to them. Number two, remember that any goodness and blessing in your life comes from God and is not the work of your own hands. So God prepared this land for Israel, and he gave it to them. Our God loves to give good gifts, and he will give us every good gift as we become ready for it. And I suppose as as long as it fits into his plan, but he wants to give us all of these good things. So number two, remember that the goodness in your life comes from God and not from you. Thirdly, remember that it is God who reached down to us first, not the other way around. Moses says to the people here that God is bringing them in partly because he he reached out first to the patriarchs with promises, promises that he will indeed fulfill. God reached down to Abram when Abram was trapped in the sinful land of Ur. And the people stand in front of Moses now Those people standing in front of him are the result of that grace extended to that man and his wife, Sarah, Sarai, when they didn't know God. It is the same with us. If God had not reached a hand down to each of us, we would likewise be a lost soul with no clarity regarding even what is light and what is darkness, right? The very beginnings of understanding. Even that would be lost to us. Well, connected to this third point about God reaching down to us first and the need to remember that, bring that back to mind frequently, we must remember that we stand on the shoulders of the generations that have come before us. And so we're humbled when we think of all that we inherit physical and spiritual, from those who broke the path for us. 
And they suffered much here in America, in particular, if you're an American listening today, um, because they wanted to worship God and to live lives for God um, according to their understanding of how um, how that was to be done. And so we owe them a great debt, and we stand on their shoulders. Fourth, here, understand that if we are giving fear a footing in our lives, fear is rooted in pride. So we have to fight fear. But we need to recognize that if we're feeling that welling up in us, that there's a pride problem there. So Moses tells the people, you shall not be afraid of the nations in Canaan. A fearful person thinks that they have control to begin with and that they are in danger of losing that control. Their emotional response to the idea that they will lose control is fear. Well, guess what? They didn't have control to begin with. And I don't have control, and you don't have control to begin with. It is God and God alone who runs the universe. Show me an arrogant person, and I'll show you a fearful one. Well, Rabbi Alon Anava tells a story that he heard firsthand, and so he was just, someone had told him this story personally, and the story has to do with fear and with the mezuzah, which we read about at the end of this portion, the commandment to write the commandments on the doorposts of our homes, which is what we're doing when we affix a mezuzah to our doorposts. Well, it's a story about a Jewish woman in Paris who wasn't raised religious, but who experiences an awakening later in life. At one point, someone teaches her about the commandment of the mezuzah. So she puts a mezuzah on the front door of her apartment. Well, eventually, someone says to her, what are you doing? The the building is full of Jew haters. You could get hurt. And so this is not a place to be so Jewish the person says to her. And there are places like this in Paris and elsewhere where Jews, you know, they take off the the kippah, they, you know, don't wear the tzitzit, they don't want any outward signs of being Jewish. And so she became afraid and she took it down. Well, one day, and I'm not going to judge her, you know, that's, if you've got neighbors, you know, we're not here to judge But that was her choice. She took it down. Well, one day she hears a knock on the door, and an old man is standing there. He says he's a neighbor from the building, and he says, can I ask a question? Why did you take down the mezuzah? And so she explains to him, you know, the fear, and he answers, let me tell you a story. I'm a Holocaust survivor. Baruch Hashem, I survived but I had an issue with God. And again, we, we, we're not judging this. He says, I was very angry. For many years, I didn't observe any of the mitzvot, just living like a non-Jew. A few months ago, the elevator wasn't working, and I had to take the stairs. And at each floor, I had to stop and take a rest. When I came to your floor, I saw the mezuzah, and it just hit me. And I started remembering when I was a kid how we had a mezuzah on our house and how I used to go with my father to the synagogue. And the synagogue had a mezuzah too. 
And all these emotions and memories began to well up in me about where I came from. And I thought, what am I doing so many years away from Hashem? And you know, I started following the mitzvot again, he tells her. And I put my own mezuzah on my own door too. Well, Rabbi Anava couldn't remember if the woman went ahead and put her mezuzah back on. But, you know, the mezuzah seems like a little thing, but it's not a little thing. In the end, though, we can't be controlled by fear and we can't hide who we are. Again, I'm not going to judge this person, but as a general rule, we can't be controlled by fear and we can't hide who we are. We don't take a light and put it under a bushel, as Yeshua says. The mezuzah is a commandment, and it's one way that we witness to the world that we are in covenant with the God of the universe. And we want the world to know that, come what may. Well, moving forward again in thinking about how we humble ourselves, accepting, um, well, one, we need to accept that um, no matter who you are or how strong you are or how strong you think you are in the Lord, your faith is going to be tested in that place of plenty, that place of physical darkness that is the context for the deepest faith walk and for spiritual maturity. Whoever you are, God will require you to walk in faith through that darkness. That's a gift he gives us so that we can grow. You will be pushed there if your faith is to be proven to have any value. The land is a place for walking by faith, not by sight. And so in Achev, Moses tells the people in chapter 11, for the land that you are entering to take possession of it is not like the land of Egypt. So listen for how the land is a place for faith right? Not like the land of Egypt. He says, not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you sowed your seed and irrigated it like a garden of vegetables. But the land that you are going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys, right? It's not so easy to irrigate on the hills and valleys. Um, and it drinks water by the rain from heaven, Moses says, a land that the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. And so in other words, Moses is telling them that when you live in the land of Israel and you plant your seeds, there is no Nile to provide irrigated water for those seeds. Everyone in the land from great to small has to look up into the heavens and ask God to send the rain so that they can eat. Walking in the land requires faith, no matter who you are. And, and Israel happens to be right on the edge of the desert, multiple deserts, right? He didn't put them in a place that was just so lush and green all the time. They're always on the edge <laughs> and living there in Israel, and that's on purpose. So sixth, here, as far as humbling ourselves, um, right? So that last one, no matter who you are, you're going to be tested in that place. Sixth. Remember your failings. We don't want to get bogged down in the past, but remembering our failings helps us to stay humble by reminding us that in the same way that we slipped and fell at that time, we could easily do the same again. 
Moses spends a large portion of these chapters reminding the people of their past failures. And these failures had to be vivid memories for this generation, which is probably one reason that generation stayed faithful. God's very vivid acts of discipline in the wilderness were a great gift to this generation. It's the gift of memory, right? We think, why, do they have, why does it have to be so dramatic there, right? <coughs> Excuse me. Well, some of those listening to Moses, you know, just to think about some of the things that they went through and how God seared some of these things into their memories. And some of them listening would have had to be the ones who moved away from Korah and Dathan and Abiram's tents as they, and they would have stood there, right, on the edge of those tents, and they would have watched and listened as the earth opened up beneath those families. And maybe those people called out and screamed as they went down into the earth. And how do you forget that? Um, Maybe even some of those who were swallowed by the earth were childhood friends of some of these people. They had helped to dig mass graves to put to rest thousands who died in plagues in the wilderness. And they searched nervously in the shadows of their tents for the snakes, right? The serpents that God let loose in the camp. Such dramatic discipline is a gift to this generation that will go into the land Uh, but we'll still remember all of these things. And so our own mess-ups, though, will likely not be so dramatic. And and I don't know whether we should pray for these dramatic things that will stay in our memory, Uh, but it's important that, you know, the mess-ups that we do have and God's discipline that that did come into our lives, that we call them to mind now and then because they help to humble us. Well, seventh here, be careful to rid your life of arrogant people because pride is infectious. It spreads like a disease. Moses tells the people here to take no mercy on the inhabitants of the land. Such people will become a thorn in our sides. The Canaanites were idolaters, and all idolaters are prideful. An idolatrous nation thinks it can manipulate the universe through its own devices. In fact, in the end, they worship themselves that way. So next, number eight, by keeping God's instructions always on our minds and lips, right? you're always talking about it, always talking about the Torah, always talking about God's word. And in that way, that's a kind of humbling in that. And so by putting ourselves in the position of the student, who must always be studying, that's a position of humility. By putting ourselves in the position of the reviewer, who must continually review or else he or she will forget, that's putting ourselves in a place of humility. Putting ourselves in the position of one who goes to God continually and asks for a portion in the Word, right? Our daily bread, our daily food, That's someone who knows that they have to go to God daily for what they need for sustenance. And so we read in this portion, impress these words of mine on your heart and on your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign upon your hand, and they shall be to fill in between your eyes, and you shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you sit in your house and when you walk on the road and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates, so that your days 
in the days of your children may be multiplied in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers to give them as the days of the heavens upon the earth. Well, I'm sure we could come up with many, many more suggestions from this Torah portion for humbling ourselves. The last one I'll mention here today is that when God blesses us, we thank him. Moses says here to the people, when you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. Right? We read that in the grace after meals. And so by thanking God, we admit that the blessing we have received is ultimately from him. We lower ourselves down to do that. In Hebrew, the word hoda'ah means to thank, but it also means to admit or to submit. When we thank someone for something, we admit that we were in the lower position as the receiver of the blessing. Thanking is a form of submitting to the authority that blesses us, the one who's in a higher position to be able to bless us. You know, we admit that we didn't have and now we have, and that came through that person or through God. And so lastly today, let's turn now to a brief focus on Yeshua in this discussion. We've been talking about casting our vision ahead now to a time of marriage, a marriage to the king. And we've been talking about entering the land and ruling over it and setting up a kingdom there, right? Marriage to the king and entering the land. And so we need to always keep in mind that the groom and the king are the same person, the Messiah, Yeshua. Yeshua is both the groom who takes the kahal to be his bride, right? The, the congregation, the assembly, the church to be his bride. And he is the warrior king who not only leads us into the land, but who also rules in peace after the battle, like King Solomon rules after King David. Right? King David was not permitted to build the temple because of the blood on his hand. He was the warrior king, and then his son inherits the shalom and the peace. And so there are two aspects to being the king, leading to the victory and, and ruling in the land at peace. And so let me just bring out a few verses and thoughts now that speak to each of these aspects of Yeshua the book of Revelation says much about the Messiah as the groom. In Revelation 19, for example, it says, Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints." So it's very clear there, the Lamb of God, which we know is Yeshua, is being married to the saints who are dressed in fine linen of their righteous deeds. And even in the Gospels, Yeshua explains that his disciples, they don't fast like the Pharisees because one does not fast when the groom is with them. Well, Revelation also has a number of verses that bring out Yeshua as the king, in chapter 17, for example, he is described as not just the king, but the warrior king. It says, they will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. 
for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And again in Revelation 19, we see Yeshua as the rider on the white horse who makes war. And remember, out of his mouth comes the sword, and on his head are many diadems, many crowns. Indeed, when Yeshua was questioned by Pilate as to whether or not he is a king, right? Pilate just comes out and asks him, well, are you a king? (laughs) He affirms that he is a king, but that his kingdom is a spiritual one. And so at least at that time, when he's being questioned by Pilate, it was a spiritual kingdom. But we look forward to the physical kingdom to come as well at his return. And, um, of course, written above his head at his death is the proclamation, King of the Jews. But um, the battle is simply the first step in reigning. The second is to reign in peace. And we know that Yeshua calls himself the Lord of what? The Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord of rest and shalom. In Isaiah 9, he is called the Prince of Peace. Well, that's all for today. Plenty to think about there. Thank you for listening. There's a link below the video to an outline of this teaching. May God make us a people who know when, uh, when and, and how to prepare for the next step he has for us. Right? We're seeing in the calendar especially what the next step is coming. And may we be a people who knows how to prepare for what's coming. And may we be a people who walk humbly with our God. And may we rise up to be the people he has made us to be. Shalom.